folks you are still listening to the valley labor report alabama's only union talk radio show we are now in overtime and like i said we're going to do a special earth day themed episode of overtime today um it's just me in the studio right now jacob had to dip out early to go to the north alabama labor council barbecue so again if you are a local listener uh, the barbecue is happening from 11 to 4 at Bronze Spring Park uh, over uh, by Drake Avenue there. So uh, there's food, there's friendship, there's fellowship, there's the nice weather, the nice spring weather today. So y'all check that out. So it is Earth Day and I wanted to really look at the intersection of the labor movement and the environmental movement and discuss how the environment and climate change affects us as working class people. So I have a few stories here uh, to hit this morning, uh, followed by an interview with a great sister over at GASP, which is a great organization working on air pollution in the Birmingham area. Uh, And then we have our interview with Matt Huber regarding his book, Climate Change as Class War. Uh, It's from a while back. Some of you may have missed it. We have a lot of new listeners since we did this interview. Uh, So if you missed it the first time around, hopefully uh, you will check it out. Uh, Those of you who did hear it, hey, check it out again. Maybe maybe you'll hear something new, learn something new. Uh, But we will finish today's overtime with that interview. So starting out, I wanted to talk about water. We need to protect our water, land, and air for our families and communities and for the generations to come after. Pollution disproportionately impacts working class people, whether it's in our neighborhoods or in our workplaces. We need stronger regulations, not weaker ones. We need good union jobs enforcing these regulations and restoring and protecting our natural environment. It's critical as a labor movement that we support workers where they're at, including workers in pollutive and extractive industries. But we must also fight for an economy and a society that can respond to the existential crisis of climate change and environmental destruction. That means moving beyond industries of pollution and extraction. And that means ensuring justice for those workers in those industries, as well as the working class communities impacted by these industries. And the working class communities impacted by climate change such as the community as uh, of Camp Hill, Alabama, that we just discussed earlier in the show with Warren Tidwell, right? We are seeing more and more severe storms and natural disasters, 
and our communities need resiliency. That takes investment. We need resilient communities that can withstand uh, the increasing tide of, of storms and other disasters that are plaguing our communities and affecting so many people. When it comes to water, according to Earth Justice, the future of clean water in the United States is at stake. A federal district court in North Dakota just blocked the EPA's science-based rule revising the definition of quote-unquote waters of the United States. The ruling could strip protections from thousands of wetlands, streams, and interstate waters in 24 states. Last month, a judge ruled the same way in a case impacting Texas and Idaho, leaving 26 states without adequate clean water protections. Earth Justice says they will use every legal tool available to fight back against this devastating ruling and protect the Clean Water Act. This news came out just days before Earth Day, an annual event created to advocate for legal and regulatory mechanisms that protect our environment. While Earth Day has become a day of celebration, it is also a reminder that we must continue to fight for our planet. The threats to our environment and our health do not cease. Big industry groups and Republican attorney generals in the 26 states that challenged the EPA's rule claim they want to gut the Clean Water Act to regulate their own water. But without having to abide by the act's state standards, but without having to abide by the act's standards, states can get away with polluting waterways or enforcing weak water regulations. The rule that was just blocked has been essential to fend off coal mining, fracking, and other reckless extraction. And without it, many communities are left without the tools they need to protect their health and the land and waters they rely on. This Earth Week, I hope you'll join Earth Justice in fighting back. We can't let polluters and extractive industries line their pockets while our communities suffer the consequences. Clean water is one of our most basic human rights, and together we can ensure that it's protected with the full power of the law. And I did want to mention, worth noting, that Alabama is one of the 26 states impacted. So where's our state government? Where's our media? You know, what kind of impact could this have on workers and our neighborhoods? You know, what about fishing, both for leisure and for work? And I'll talk more about fishing in a moment, but a lot of questions I have about this rule change and how it's going to inf impact folks. Um, and I know there will be an, the inevitable response that it's for jobs, but call me radical, call me crazy. I don't think we have to sacrifice clean water for the sake of jobs. I think there's plenty of work that needs to be done in this country. Um, we, there is plenty of labor to be done and respected and paid before we start sacrificing clean water, clean air. It's just, you know, it's not an argument that I, I believe is very serious. On the subject of water, my next story is involving rising sea levels. Sea levels are rising rapidly along the southern United States, according to a new study. A study published earlier this month finds sea level rise along the coast of the southeastern United States has accelerated rapidly since 2010, 
raising fears that tens of millions of Americans' homes in cities across the South will be at risk from flooding in the decades to come. This is from an article uh, recently published by Yahoo News. According to Sanka Dangendorf, an assistant professor of river coastal science and engineering at Tulane University over in New Orleans, he told the Washington Post it's a window into the future. The paper and another published last month in the Journal of Climate find that sea levels along the Gulf Coast and the southern Atlantic coast have risen an average of one centimeter per year since 2010. That translates to nearly five inches over the last 12 years. And it's about double the rate of average global sea level rise during the same time period. I should probably repeat that. Here in the south, along our coast, the sea is rising at about double the rate of the rest of the world, the average rate in the world. So here again, the south is disproportionately bearing the brunt of our economic system and its damaging impacts. The Journal of Climate Study found that the hurricanes that have recently hammered the Gulf Coast, including Michael in 2018 and Ian, which was blamed in the deaths of over 100 Floridians last year, had a more severe impact because of higher sea levels. It turns out that the water level associated with Hurricane Ian was the highest on record due to the combined effect of sea level rise and storm surge said Professor Yin, a climate a scientist at the University of Arizona and the author of the Journal of Climate Study. Data from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the NOAA, show the water level at Lake Pontchartrain, an estuary bordering New Orleans, is eight inches higher than it was in 2006. Other cities threatened by rising oceans in the region include Houston, Miami, and Mobile, Alabama. The centimeter per year rate is far faster than experts had expected, and it's more in line with projections made for the end of the century. High tide flooding, when the tides bring water onto normally dry land on rain-free days, has more than doubled on the Gulf Coast and the Southeast Coast since the beginning of this century, according to NOAA. Recent years have seen records for high tide flooding obliterated. The city of Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, went from three days of high tide flooding in 2000 to 22 days in 2020. A study by scientists with the University of Miami, NOAA, NASA, and other institutions, which has not yet undergone peer review, to be clear, found that the southeastern sea level rise accounted for 30 to 50 percent of flood days in 2015 through 2020. In low-lying coastal regions, an increase of even a few centimeters in the background sea level can break the regional flooding thresholds and lead to coastal inundation, according to the study. So continuing our special Earth Day focus, I did want to highlight pending legislation in Alabama that is actually being supported by environmental groups across the state. So it's not all bad news. We actually have something right now, working its way through the legislature, that's positive. Can't always say that in Alabama. So the following is from Mobile Baykeeper. Did you know that throughout 98 waterways in Alabama, there are 213 advisories to limit the amount of fish you should eat? That data is almost unknown to the general public. HB 297, also known as the Shore Act, 
ensures government accountability and transparency by giving you access to this critical data that the public already owns. Help safeguard your family's health and our fishing heritage. So what can you do to ensure our fishing is protected, our families stay safe, and this vital piece of legislation is passed? Well, contact your representative. Your voice is vital. Call your representative and tell them you want to see Alabama's fish consumption advisories improved. Urge them to vote for the bill as written. For generations, fishing has been an essential part of life along the Gulf Coast. That's why humans settled here in the first place. From the Mississippian era to today, fishing our waters has given those who live in coastal Alabama much sustenance and many memories. Days that begin with early morning trips to the water and end that evening with the family gathering around as fresh a dinner as you could ever have. Days like these have been the way of life for many in the region. In coastal Alabama, fishing is not just a pastime or a source of sustenance, it's a part of who we are. However, over many years, our waters and fish have been changed by pollution. In fact, 213 advisories recommend limiting fish consumption in various water bodies across Alabama. Now Alabama has an opportunity to protect the health of everyone who eats wild-caught fish from our waters with the Safe and Healthy Outdoor Recreation Act of 2023, also known as the Shore Act. Senator Linda Coleman-Madison introduced the Senate version, SB 105, which will ensure outdoor recreationists or paddlers, swimmers, and fishers across Alabama are better informed about fish consumption advisories in our rivers, streams, creeks, and bays. So far, the bill has bipartisan support in the Alabama Senate. But Mobile Baykeeper is asking for your help to help get it passed. For more information about the bill and how you can get involved, you can read the latest information at mobilebaykeeper.org. So, really wanted to uh, lift that up. Uh, I know some other environmental groups are also working on that bill as well, the Shore Act. Glad to see something positive uh, actually working its way through the legislature. From what I can tell, it seems uh, to be on a good track. So, uh, if you get a chance, email your rep. Give your, your state rep a call, your state senator. Just let them know that you're interested in the SHORE Act, that you'd like to see the bill as written. Go ahead, be approved. Uh, this should be a totally non-controversial piece of legislation, right? It should not be controversial that we know which fish are safe to eat and which ones aren't when we fish our own waters here in Alabama. And that previous message from Mobile Baykeeper about protecting our fishing in Alabama reminded me to let folks know about the Union Sportsmen Alliance. The Union Sportsmen's Alliance USA is a union-operated, union-dedicated conservation organization. It's committed to uniting the more than 6 million active and retired AFL-CIO trade union members who hunt, fish, shoot, and enjoy outdoor recreation into one community with a shared commitment to educate future generations of sportsmen and sportswomen, conserve healthy wildlife habitat, and volunteer their time and skills for projects that improve outdoor access for all. The Union Sportsmen's Alliance goal is to become North, North America's largest community of union sportsmen and women committed to preserving our outdoor heritage for generations to come. 
You can find out more on unionsportsman.org. So I just wanted to give them a little shout out uh, as it seemed on topic today for our Earth Day Overtime. The next segment I have comes from our friends at Energy Alabama. Uh, I got some action alerts from them this past week, and they are very concerned about a bill that's working its way through the legislature called SB 40. So Energy Alabama is calling for urgent action regarding SB 40, which has now passed out of the Alabama legislature and it only awaits Governor Ivey's signature. Energy Alabama has an online action form that makes it easy to contact the governor and ask her to veto the legislation. SB 40, if enacted, will prohibit local governments from passing any ordinance law, regulation, or rule that would require quote-unquote latent features in new residential construction. According to Energy Alabama, this means that SB 40 will pro prohibit local governments from taking action to make it easier and less costly in the future to transition to clean energy, like electric vehicles or solar. SB 40 will add to the cost later when the residential property owner, someone like you, decides to add solar or an EV charging station or otherwise expand electric capacity on the property. These additional costs could be substantial. It's much more affordable to build in the capacity to expand at the time of construction rather than retrofitting later, which makes perfect sense to me. Here's an example. Rather than adding 25 to 100 bucks to the cost of your new home to install an outlet for an electrical vehicle charger you may buy in the future, the Alabama legislature would rather you be forced to do an infrastructure retrofit later on and pay an extra 500 to $1,000. According to Energy Alabama, SB 40 is a naked attempt to protect fossil fuels like oil and gas that are dirtier and costlier. The bill is flying under the radar and is on the fast track for passage. As I said, it's already passed both houses of the legislature, so at this point, our only chance is to convince Governor Kay Ivey to veto the legislation, which is what Energy Alabama is calling for. So uh, when you get a chance, go online to energyalabama.org. Uh, you can fill out their online action form there. You can find out more about the bill and why they are concerned about the bill. All right, so coming up next, I have an interview that I uh, really enjoyed with uh, Jaleesa Milton of GASP. And GASP is a really cool organization in Birmingham. Um, I'm a longtime member of GASP. Uh, I believe in the work that they do, the Greater Birmingham Alliance to Stop Pollution. Uh, I got a chance to meet some of their team um, in Houston back in the fall. I went to the Gulf Climate Summit in Houston, and uh, I met Jaleesa. I met a, a couple of other sisters working there, uh, you know, Michael Hansen, the executive director. And so I really enjoy I enjoy getting to meet them and know them a little bit better. Uh, and I really appreciate the work they're doing in our community. Uh, so I wanted to bring this interview on Earth Day to highlight, you know, the environmentalists I knew were doing good work in Alabama. Uh, it seemed important to me. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to play this interview uh, regarding GASP, the work they do, and 
the intersection between labor rights and environmental justice uh, was a big part of this conversation. So hopefully you will enjoy it. All right, folks, you are still listening to the Valley Labor Report. This is Alabama's only union talk radio show, and my name is Adam Keller. Uh, really looking forward to this next interview. We are doing a little bit of a Earth Day special this year. And so I wanted to reach out to folks I knew in the environmental movement who are doing good work. Uh, and I was blessed to meet Jaleesa at the uh, Houston Climate Summit and uh, put on by the Climate Reality Project back in October. It was a really cool event. I uh, learned a lot uh, and I met great people, including some of the team at GASP, the Greater Alliance to Stop Pollution in Birmingham. Uh, really, really uh, uh, impressed with what they do. So without further ado, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure, um, my name is Jaleesa Milton. Um, I'm currently the Deputy Director for Advocacy and Strategic Partnerships with GASP. Um, and I've been in that role since last October, which might be coming on nine months soon. Um, That's right. You were brand new when I met you. I <laughs> forgot about that. Yes. And it's been a really good experience um, doing this work. So. Awesome. And uh, you have some experience already in like, the movement, so to speak. You, you've been involved as an activist and an organizer and advocate. Uh, could you speak to that? What you, you know, what have you been up to before this current role? Yeah, I've, um, for the last decade, I've been involved with so many social movements in Alabama and beyond. I graduated from undergrad um, and immediately jumped into work um, in Central Florida. And I'll talk about that a little bit later because there were some workers' rights and environmental issues there. Um, and I was doing a lot of work with a migrant worker community there. And then kind of like coming back to law school and jumping head first in a lot of racial justice work because of my own experiences as a Black woman. And then since then, I've been doing so many things. I did budget and tax policy work. Um, I've been doing work around reproductive justice. And so it's been, a, there's been a lot, you know, of, of movement, but I think like when I got involved with the environmental justice work, I feel like a lot of the intersections of that work became very clear to me. Um, so happy to be here today to talk about one of those intersections. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's one of the things that I wanted to do with this episode and, and what we try to do on the Valley Labor Report throughout is to look at those intersections between workers and labor and working class more broadly, but unions specifically with mm -hmm. aspects of our society, whether it's race, the environment, gender, there are intersections there that all affect the way we live. And uh, I, I think given your very broad activist background, I mean, if there's a struggle, seems like you've been there, uh, pretty much whatever the arena may be. And so I think that uh, speaks to, to your work and also it's why I wanted to speak to you today. So could you introduce GASP? What is GASP? What do y'all do? So GASP is um, an environmental justice organization that focuses 
primarily on air pollution. Um, and it was founded to address like a lot of the air pollution in Birmingham that was remnant of a lot of the industry that was here and is still here. Um, I don't know if everybody's seen, but there were a, pretty, a couple lists that came out of, like about a month ago about how Birmingham is one of the top 10 cities with the worst air quality. Mm. Um, but we're still kind of struggling through this issue. And there's a lot of things, um, there's a lot of movement in the city about these questions. Um, and we also do work with climate justice and because it's important to understand the connection that air pollution um, has on climate in terms of climate and also in terms of how uh, some communities bear the brunt of, of the effects of um, these climate changes and, the, and weather changes and natural disasters and things like that. And there's a lot of correlations and intersections that we work on in terms of discussing resiliency of our communities um, because of environmental issues. Yeah, so that's yeah. Uh, just what we do. I don't know if you you know, the most recent thing that people might be thinking of is the, the situation with the Moody landfill fire. Mm. Um, and we've been, we do a lot of community education around air monitoring and around advocacy and helping people access um, process to agencies to advocate for better environments too. So that was one instance that we really jumped in because of um, how urgent it was and in the in the public health risk that it presented at that time. So people remember that. Oh yeah, absolutely. That was a big story. And uh, I think the work that you're doing to empower folks to be able to advocate for themselves around these issues, that's so important. Um, I think a lot of times we're we're led to believe that things can't change, that things can't get better. You know, there's no use in speaking up, all that. And and I think it's important that you have that backup and the education process to yeah to empower folks to be able to to advocate. And something else you said that really resonates is that some communities bear the brunt of air pollution and climate change more than others, and. Mm -hmm. You know, that was something also I learned at that event in Houston that we were at. It really, you know, it's something I knew, but it really like hammered at home the the disparities in communities. And, you know, the, there's no coincidence that it's the poorest neighborhoods, the neighborhoods with the most racial minorities. Uh, those are the neighborhoods that seem to bear the brunt of whether it's air pollution or any other environmental catastrophe. Uh, and, and I think that's something that is relevant to working class people, right? Because it's our neighborhoods that are impacted. Jeff Bezos, he's probably not very concerned about air pollution, right? He's very, you know, he can be resilient. He has the resources. It's all the rest of us that are that are trying and struggling to, to have that resiliency. So. GASP is doing good work there, uh, and you mentioned Birmingham is really uh, a major site of pollution in this state, historically and, and currently, so I think that's just, um, it's one of those things that maybe folks don't consider a workers issue, but it absolutely is because it's our communities and it's the industries in which we work. Right. Someone works in these industries. So I think that's uh, that's worth highlighting. So I wanted to ask yeah. you uh, about 
that intersection about environmental mm -hmm. justice, air pollution, climate justice, the, the sorts of things y'all are working on, how does that intersect with the labor movement and unions and the sort mm -hmm. of stuff that we work on? Yeah, you've kind of started to name it a little bit. I know, so as I know in my family, my grandfather and his father worked in like the steel industry in Birmingham. And I grew up listening to him talk about how frustrating it was for his father to be at work and experience a lot of these um, really stark and, and rash labor issues of, related to safety, related to you know health, health and environment and things like that. And we see like how even in Birmingham, you see where these communities are front line to a lot of, you know, these coal industries that pollute the air and they're literally fence line living near there. And that was a product of kind of some of these ideas originally when the city was built in terms of having workers have access to where they worked. Right. And before we had all, like, a lot of these really large conversations about, you know, workers rights in terms of like safety and OSHA and all these things, you know, this was built in this way to, uh, for working class people to to be living near their jobs, not necessarily about like how that could be affecting their bodies. And you're right, like some people, you know, the people who ran the, you know, these buildings in terms of like financially gaining the most probably didn't live that close. So it is, there's these questions about like how that's still parallel. Um, there's a there's a lot of controversy in Birmingham about a particular neighborhood. Um, the 35th Avenue Superfund site. Um, and you, you see like how now that we have these conversations, like, you know, people's families have been living in the area for decades and generations. And, you know, we're having these conversations about how their, their soil is polluted, right? And when you do something like environmental justice work, you kind of run into these conversations with these movements are pitted against each other, right? Mm. Like here why would you want the facility to shut down? Because then I won't have my job. You know, you hear, you you see how these conversations are often seen as binary, but at the end of the day, the same people who are putting property before people's bodies in one way are also doing it in other ways, right? They They decide where they're going to put their industry based on who they think um, would resist it. Right. And so I definitely see the parallels. Um, I also see the parallels when we talk about, you know, how a lot of the, some, some of these political ideas about anti-regulation, like, you know, EPA was being uh, defunded, you know, just as much as, you know, these OSHA practices are being removed, you know, like, you know, this anti-regulation aspect, like you see that trickle down in several movements, not just like environmental. So it's like, you know, it, it intersects in worker safety, it intersects in terms of like regulatory practices and, and you know, one, and you can see it every time. I know one instance in Moody, when we talk about Moody, there was a conversation about like whether we have funded enough labor to, to like really manage these emergencies. Um, and safety in terms of that way, like you have these conversations that arise because these first responder questions about whether like they have even been equipped well, you know, um, 
So yeah, I see that a lot. Um, I used to do, I think I mentioned that I used to do some work in Central Florida. At that time, I was doing an AmeriCorps program and I went because I wanted to, to you know, help high schoolers, right? Right. <laughs> and they were, you know, they were like, I want to help high schoolers in Florida learn math, you know? But then I got brought into this conversation about immigration and the the students and their families were going through working in nurseries. Um, they were migrant workers and they were dealing with pesticides in a, at this particular, you know, at these nurseries. So you see these kind of conversations about how they're treated because of their identity, but also as workers, like how that played out. And, and they would talk about their hands being burnt by chemicals, you know, um, and there was a lake there that was called Lake Apopka. And there, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Farm Workers Association of Florida, but they talk about how historically they would drain this lake, farm it with workers, and then flood it back after you know the harvest is over and that lake became contaminated. But then you see how all those workers are like generation generationally suffering through health issues. So like, you know, so you just see like these remnants of like industry being treating people uh, in these unsafe ways and it's direct associations to how they treat the environment. So I just, that's so that there's, there's just so many parallels, you know, and I do think we should work together because to at least make sure these industries at least adhere to some level of standard um, for our lives. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, th there's so much you said there that really hits home, but you know, I think it's in the, the intergenerational part is really worth pulling out because this is something that affects people's lives and their children's lives and their grandchildren's lives. Uh, it's something that affects the entire community. Uh, and, you know, the whether it's farm workers, whether it's mm -hmm. coal miners, you know, whatever mm -hmm. the situation may be. Uh, you know, and you talked about working together for certain standards. Uh, I can't help but think of the Warrior Met strike in Brookwood. And shortly after the minor, the UMWA miners went out on strike, of course, they brought in replacement workers, scabs to the mines. Uh, and shortly after that, the Black Warrior River was heavily polluted, you know. And so there's there's just a. a another example right here in the state of Alabama of how these issues intersect. And, you know, I think something that is also worth mentioning, you, you talked about the Superfund site um, and the EPA and the EPA and the way it's been underfunded over the years. And we see the same, like you, like, like you mentioned with OSHA, the National Labor Relations Board, anything related to protecting folks, whether it's our air, our water, our rights in the workplace, it seems like any functions of government that have been set up ostensibly to help us have been under threat. And and something else that you said that I really liked is that, you know, the the folks who put property over people, whether that's the you know, that translates across mm -hmm. our society, whether it's the way they treat their workers, the way they treat the neighborhoods next to their plants, whatever the situation may be, or the environment as a whole, like the air and the climate that we all have to, to rely on. 
Uh, and I think that's that's really really important. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, something something else I wanted to just ask you to kind of as we close the conversation, I wanted you to tell me just what does environmental justice mean to you? Like what? Mm -hmm. Why do you do what you do? Yeah. Um, before before I took this job. I, and, I, and I know like not everybody is like gung-ho about the climate work, but I didn't quite understand, I think. Like I, like I knew I wasn't against it, but I didn't understand it. Um, and now that I've started to do the work, I feel a deeper connection to, to what this all means. And what I'm, what I'm saying when I say that is that um, we don't, you know, I, I find it very interesting in this like corporate society and I've done policy work for some time that we all recognize the kind of therapeutic, emotional enjoyment that we get from the environment. And I mean that in terms of like me, some really wealthy people on jet skis, you know, like right. people who go hunting go fishing yeah absolutely fishing. you know we have this very we clearly have not and i, I want to say everyone but i know probably i don't know everyone but i've seen people from all backgrounds at least on some level acknowledge the role that that has on on our on, on us and still we end up in this situation where we make these decisions as a society to not um, protect that. And it's a really interesting double standard because I definitely see the same people who make these decisions go to go, you know, you know, we can use like a really rich person. I don't know who an example, go to San Tropez, go to the beach in you know, mm -hmm. Hawaii. And, um, and, I, and I think that I have had to think a lot about what that, what, what, what that means to me, you know, and also understand like the connection it has to my health, you know, the connection, like what does it mean to, for some people to be able to sustain a hurricane and some people not, their whole lives are over. And um, that's directly tied to the same economic, racial, whatever connections that, that I have thought about in the past. Um, and how some of us who are probably the, the low, the people with the lowest income are the most connected to these things, these other things. So I think I, I, I guess I'll say that to say, I, I, I feel passionate about this issue because I can see ways that I can talk to people about it and, and, and reach their other values like labor like um, taking care of their families, like their racial identity, and talk about the kind of world we want to live in, because there's nothing that brings us all together like living on Earth. Like <laughs> there's just nothing, right. you know. There's nothing. So I think I've gotten a lot from the last nine months that has made me feel connected because of everything else I've done in social justice work. Um, so that's, I guess it's kind of a long way of answering that question, but yeah, no, that's, that's, that's great. I mean, and that's, <laughs> to me, that's what it's all about, right? Is, is yeah. different forms of, of justice are all mm -hmm. justice. 
And whether it's economic justice or racial justice, environmental justice, at the end of the day, it's about a better world for all of us mm -hmm. uh, and recognizing our shared humanity and the dignity that we all deserve. Mm -hmm. And so I, I really appreciate your answer there. Uh, the last thing I'll ask is, is if you wanted to tell us about GASP in terms of getting plugged in, like where should folks go? Uh, do y'all need volunteers or take volunteers? Like if anyone's interested, you know, in, in just getting plugged in and finding out more, you know, tell us about that. Yes. So we have, there's two things. One thing is our membership and another thing is volunteers. So we have we are a membership-based organization, and the reason that we are is because we like to hear from our members like what their thoughts are about these issues, and also because it helps us understand how we can advocate in different places in the state, because we know that there's not a lot of people, you know, a lot of organizations that do air quality work in particular, and we know that we, if people become members in other areas, we have, we, we, we can engage with them and, and learn about this question in a different ways. So I'll start there. And then, so if you wanna be a member, you can um, go to our website, gasgroup.org. Um, and there's different tiers um, and you can choose, or you can email us if you feel like that's not an option for you too. Um, and um, we also do take volunteers. We take volunteers a lot because we like to do a lot of outreach. So if you like talking to people about environmental stuff, then you're good. And you cannot, we also take volunteers to help with any, like some maternal things here and there. We also take interns. So if there's somebody who is maybe in school and is thinking about doing something, then that's, we do that too. And you can um, email um, our executive director, Michael Hansen, and his email address is mhansen.gasgroup.org. Or you can look on our website and um, email it there too. But yeah, there's definitely a lot of ways to plug in. Awesome. And I'm wearing my shirt today. I am a, a proud <laughs> member of GASP, uh, you know, because okay. I believe in the work that y'all do and I appreciate the work that y'all do. Uh, was there anything else? Uh, I didn't ask you anything else you wanted to, to say before we end it today. No, I think I thank you so much for inviting us because we really I've heard really good things about this work too um and about you adam um and i got the i got the valley labor report experience now <laughs> some people were like i wish i was going on there so it was kind of cool to know well, I can, you know. <laughs> absolutely uh absolutely and anytime y'all have something going on uh if y'all have a big event coming uh or if there's just you know unfortunately chances are there's going to be another disaster uh, and so there could be, there could be something really pressing to talk about. So uh, whether it's yourself or anyone else from GASP, always welcome on the show and uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you. All right, y'all. I uh, really appreciate y'all still tuning in, and I really hope y'all enjoyed that interview with uh, Jaleesa Milton from GASP. I enjoyed it myself. I uh, enjoyed talking with her. appreciate the work that she's doing in her community and through GASP as well, and uh, encourage y'all to check them out. 
definitely encourage you to check them out. So before uh, we wrap things up with our climate changes class war interview, I did just want to mention that there that we are aware there was a lot going on this week that we just didn't get to talk to talk about this week. <clears throat> there's so much going on uh, that there's a lot of important topics we didn't include in today's episode. For example, Governor Kay Ivey has banned a teacher textbook in the pre-K department and has ousted the agency head, Dr. Barbara Cooper. I highly recommend the Alabama Reflector article about this issue. Uh, it is just totally bizarre uh, and disgraceful and shameful, in my opinion. Uh, and, you know, my sympathies go to Dr. Barbara Cooper, someone I worked with uh, during her time as deputy superintendent in Huntsville City Schools, someone I respected. Um, she worked for Casey Wardensky, so, you know, clearly we didn't always see eye to eye. Uh, but it's so, she was someone that I certainly respected. Uh, and I believe genuinely, genuinely wanted what's best uh, for the kids. And I think that's the spirit of her work at the pre-K department, from what I've observed, at least. Um, and so it's sad to see uh, to see her publicly, you know, ousted in this way. Uh, I can certainly relate, Dr. Cooper. I know some of the feelings you're feeling, but um, it's just really a, a poor move by Governor Kay Ivey, a petty move on, on her part uh, to do this. And, of course, on you know, late Friday evening press release kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, check out the article from Alabama Reflector. I think we're going to try to republish that on our website as well, TV, tvlr.fm. I uh, really enjoyed their, their reporting on that. I uh, also wanted to mention that the Writers Guild of America is delivering a message to entertainment investors and analysts as the Screenwriters Union ratchets up pressure on studios amid contract negotiations. If the two sides can't reach an agreement, it could result in the first work stoppage by the WGA in 15 years. The contract is set to expire May 1st. Writers voted by a huge historic margin, 98% in favor, for strike authorization. That's huge. 98% in favor of strike authorization, uh, which of course allows union leaders to call a walkout if they are unable to negotiate a new contract. The earliest the strike could happen is May 2nd. So stay tuned to that developing story. Uh, we also had more news uh, out of D.C., where Republicans in the House are pushing an austerity budget using the debt limit as a bargaining chip. We'll have to stay tuned to that. Uh, I know there's also some news from the National Domestic Workers Alliance uh, working on getting uh, some of their representatives on the show to discuss that. There was a new executive order from the Biden administration that you know seems promising. Locally, workers at Old Town Coffee in Five Points here in Huntsville, uh, just around the road from, from Spice Radio Studio, the workers at Old Town Coffee walked out. Um, one of the workers' uh, testimonies has been going around on Facebook, and uh, some folks tagged us on it. We did see that, and uh, we're in communication and, and trying to uh, find out more about what's going on there. All that and a lot more happening in working-class news, so definitely stay tuned for next week's The Valley Labor Report. 
Uh, and also wanted to encourage folks to stay tuned to Thursday morning's Shop Talk. Of course, Shop Talk is the new series we have started, which is focused on labor education, history, and training. So we have talked about how to get involved as a new member and some of the legal rights you have as a union member. We have talked to historian Max Frazier about studying the working class. Talked to Joe Hall, Demanuel Hall from Labor Notes about the resources they provide. All of that and more. A little bit of labor history. Uh, we've talked about the Walker County teacher strike of 1979. Uh, this week, I looked at American involvement in the Spanish Civil War. And, uh, you know, that's favorite top, one of my favorite topics, so I certainly enjoyed that. So Shop Talk airs every Thursday. Uh, you can check it out live on YouTube and Facebook or a few days later as a podcast. So if you miss it, no worries. Check out our YouTube channel uh, or a couple days later, you can download it as a podcast on your favorite app. So that's all I have for you all today before we transition into climate change as class war interview. Uh, really enjoyed this interview back from, I believe it was June, so it has been a while. Uh, and like I said, many of you may have missed this the first go around. Many of you uh, are new listeners. And we thought it was important with it being Earth Day today and having an Earth Day theme here and over time, we thought it was important to bring this interview back out for you know a little bit different kind of discussion about climate change, climate justice, the politics surrounding these issues, and how it impacts working class people, um, including how we fight these issues, uh, what kind of language we use when we fight these issues, all that, all that comes up and more. Uh, so without further ado, y'all check out this interview, Matt Huber, Climate Change as Class War. Capitalism really exploits the working class. It makes their life worse. It makes their life insecure. Really, we need a politics that offers more to them, that offers them more security, uh, more power. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Climate change as class war is a new book that seeks to reframe the conversation around climate change by Matthew T. Huber, professor of geography in the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University. You can buy his new books online at Powell's, a union bookstore, and if you purchase his book through the union's link, 7.5% of your purchase goes directly to their strike fund. So that is very cool. Consider purchasing his book there. Matt is also our next guest. Matt, welcome to the Valley Labor Report. Thanks for having me, Jacob. Absolutely. So um, like I said, you know, your your book, it, it seems to me, is largely an attempt to uh, uh, to try to reframe the conversation around climate change um what do you feel like is wrong with uh the current conversation about climate change in this country well there, there's a lot i think um i think you know when you hear people talk about the struggle over climate change they often mention um a couple problems they often mention that 
there's a lot of denial of the science around climate change. And so there's uh, a lack of awareness or understanding of the truth of, of, the, of the science of, of this dire threat that, that uh, really threatens uh, our species and the planet. Um, and there is a lot of discussion about um, responsibility for this, this uh, crisis that centers on people's consumption actions. Um, and, and I think rightly, it focuses on how the rich tend to be more, more responsible with their uh, high consumption lifestyles, whether it be flying a lot or um, uh, eating steak or driving a Hummer, or private jets, whatever it might be. Um, both of these, I think, uh, sort of avoid what I think is at the core of the the crisis, which is industrial production. Um, and, you know, this is this is climate change is ultimately a product of something that started about 200 years ago that we call the industrial revolution, which shifted energy systems to burning this stuff that we can dig out of the ground called fossil fuel. And this industrial system of production uh, reliant on fossil fuels is really at the core of the crisis. And what struck me is that um, when you go back to sort of old school socialist or working class theories of class struggle, theories of class um, conflict, it, it, in the old days, it really was centered on this struggle over industrial production, over who owns and controls the means of production and how capitalists sort of take that control over production and, and, and uh, sh shift it towards profit at all uh, other costs. And of course, workers and working class people have struggled to take their own forms of control over production, whether it be through strikes or unionization. And so this kind of old school class analysis focused on production seemed to be a much more um, accurate way to analyze the current struggle we're facing and, and actually like really center it as a material struggle over how we produce things. And, and uh, I think that really helps us shift away from this sometimes pretty moralistic type of politics that focuses on, do you know the science? Do you, do you believe science? Or are you um, virtuously low carbon enough in your consumption and your lifestyle and all these kind of actions you can take as an individual consumer, which again, um, every individual consumer is provisioned by a producer who's usually a capitalist who owns that production and is trying to seek profits on that production. So all these consumers with their lifestyles are ultimately can be linked back to for-profit capitalist producers. And I would argue the people profiting off these relationships deserve way more blame, way more responsibility, and really have the power in our society. They're the ones that really control these energy systems. And really, uh, we're gonna have to take on their power if we're gonna be able to uh, get, get them, uh, get our production system off of fossil fuels, which is ultimately what we have to do to, to forestall this, this really serious planetary crisis. One of the things that always fascinated me about environmental politics, like as, the, the, as soon as I learned this, it just, I've never been able to get it out of my mind. The fact that the, you know, crying Indian guy who was actually an Italian, um, yeah. he yeah. was that whole campaign was funded by corporations like Coca-Cola and the Mason yeah. Dixon company. 
in the wake of laws that were attempting to ban single-use products. Right. But there, there, there was a move in the country across state legislatures and, and, and things like this to attempt to get at the production of these single-use products. Exactly. And the companies were able to, through a mass marketing campaign, shift the conversation from production to consumption. Like saying that, oh, no, it's not, it's not our fault that we're producing yeah. this terrible product. It's your right. fault for consuming it. Yes. No, absolutely. And, and you know, that, that led into all these campaigns where it, it focused on individual decisions to recycle or to or basically produce less waste. And it all became the onus is all on the individual. And what's really interesting, I think that campaign was uh, early 70s, maybe late 60s. It's just continued from that point. And there's actually a recent paper that was published that did a systematic analysis of ExxonMobil's kind of advertisements and found that there's this consistent narrative that they promote that tries to shift blame for climate change to individuals and their carbon footprints and how they consume things. And, and of course, that shifts the blame away from the Exxon Mobiles of the world. And that's what they want, right? It's it's actually quite hilarious that the, the very like concept of a carbon footprint was invented by British Petroleum. And they've they've recently, you can see them tweeting out these carbon footprint calculators that asked people on Twitter to kind of, hey, get involved, find out how you can pitch in to save the climate. And um, the whole analysis of a carbon footprint, like I was saying before, assumes that responsibility and emissions are only in this realm of consumption. And all the people profiting off our consumption are just erased by these quantitative methods to estimate people's so-called footprints. And so it's a really sophisticated um, uh, strategy to shift all attention and blame onto us, the consumers, and, and a lot of working class consumers and make it seem like they're the ones to blame. Um, and uh, you know, in the book, I argue that actually for this kind of professional class, um, sort of middle middle class um, person that is really into the science. They also are quite materially secure and comfortable and have a level of consumption that they actually feel somewhat guilty about. I call it carbon guilt in the book. And so I actually say that this, this strategy of making it all about individual and their consumption actually appeals to professional middle class people who have this anxiety about their consumption. And then they are the ones that are really promoting this kind of moralistic politics about, you know, we are the ones who have sinned. <laughs> we must, we must uh, you know, reduce, we must uh, lower our, our carbon footprints. And so they promote this. And unfortunately, uh, this kind of professional class moralistic politics really plays into the hands of big fossil capital who's, who's really got the power in this situation and are very happy to see professionals blame themselves and all of us sort of focus on individual consumption. Yeah, I was going to just say that I really appreciate what you're trying to do, which is centering this crisis with who has power uh, exactly. and who profits, uh, right. because I, I think you're, you're so right that that is lost in this conversation. And, and that's to our detriment and to the benefit of those who actually are uh, causing this crisis. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the the, the way ahead. that the well, I was just going to say that the, the way that it, it seems to me that that you put the 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 argument in your book is that there there are two kind of threads that are pushing this individualistic idea of of a carbon footprint and 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 those are are the 
the type of neoliberal um, ideology of individualism, personal right. responsibility and all this. And right. then also the carbon guilt among the, you know, the the professional managerial class who do have mm -hmm. a, a comparatively high standard of living and, and, and they feel bad about it. Um, yeah. and, and so how do you feel like those kind of interact well, it's quite interesting because you can kind of trace, um, you know, if you look at the history of capitalism in the United States, you have this process of one, you could see sort of the decline of the industrial working class, which we've all been bemoaning on the socialist left. You know, you've had a process of deindustrialization where a lot of industrial factory work has either been automated or offshored and you've had a lot of hollowing out of industrial working class communities but at the same time um and of course people have commented on how that process has really widened inequality in society as a whole it sort of eroded this kind of uh middle class um industrial working class jobs that were an option for people with like high school educations uh let's say in the the 40s 50s and 60s uh, 1940s, 50s, and 60s. But alongside that process, you also have the massive expansion of higher education and um, uh, in, in society. And what I argue is that as society is becoming more unequal, which is a product of this kind of neoliberal ideology uh, that you mentioned before, um, professional class people are really trying to kind of use credentials or use degrees or use um, all sorts of, um, uh, you know, like, credentials to carve out an advantage in this increasingly unequal labor market that's defined by the hollowing out of working class power and all that. And so um, the, these professionals, uh, this professional class is really expanding at the same time society is moving towards this kind of neoliberal um, free market uh, type of ideology. And, and also it's quite clear that professionals themselves respond to this kind of free market idea because a lot of because education is so central to their kind of life class project um they really buy into these narratives of meritocracy and this idea that it's like up to individuals sort of studying hard and and being smart <laughs> and getting their credentials to to succeed and that success is a product of their own hard work there's an incredible book that you, you all may have discussed or heard about um uh by lily geismer who shows how the Democratic Party in the 80s and 90s really shifted their base from working class people to these kind of suburban affluent professionals who bought into a lot of neoliberal politics, this idea that we need to get more competitive, we need to be more meritocratic, means testing, things like that. All that kind of uh, triangulation that the, the Clinton uh, regime sort of pushed onto the Democratic Party really appealed to these affluent professional suburban people. And so that that then became the base of the Democratic Party as they as they drifted away from their working class base, which is only just continuing uh, uh, decade after decade uh, since then. So. Right. Right. And and so, you know, you've got this uh, the ideology and the carbon guilt is incorrectly in in your view and in our view incorrectly identifying the problem and so that is bringing them to a solution that is basically everybody has to live with less and yeah. 
that has somehow not been super convincing. We're obviously, you know, we can look around and we're not living in a world with high speed rail and all electric cars and solar panels everywhere, you know. So the, the politics of less has been less than convincing uh, to, to working folks. Why do you think that is? Right. So um, when the, the professionals are kind of in charge of environmental politics and they do have this kind of guilt about their own complicity, their own consumption. Um, uh, there's a kind of narcissism <laughs> and that's, that's kind of all about them. Um, they've become quite, uh, I try to argue in the book that there's even a kind of radical variant of this kind of professional class climate politics that I, I call it anti-system radicalism and they kind of reject capitalism and industrialism as a whole. Um, but their alternative is this sort of what, um, some of your listeners may have heard of this sort of vision of degrowth or or uh, some of the slogans of degrowth or how to live better with less. And, and, and they really they really hone in on sort of aggregate reductions of energy consumption and particularly in what they call the rich countries of the global north, which completely erases the fact that in a so-called rich country like the United States, there are huge proportions of people that are literally struggling to survive, barely meeting their basic needs. Um, and, and so this politics of less extremely appeals to a small minority of the professional class, which if you go off um, statistics, you know, one estimate, about 22% of the workforce are in these professional occupations. You can also just look at a very basic statistic that 63-ish percent of Americans don't have a college degree. So I think one kind of um, prerequisite to most professional uh, class occupations is that BA or that college degree. And that's already a minority of, of the population. And so you get a lot of these, they're in my field, like academics or, or people that work in NGOs or people that work in scientific think tanks or policy think tanks, and they're highly credentialed, they're highly, and they really, they really love this idea that we've, we've reached an ecological crisis, we need to, we need to consume less, we need to uh, sort of draw down, reduce uh, society as a whole. And that makes sense to them because again, they feel like they're already kind of a little too excessive in their own lives. They might have a, they might drive a car, they might have to fly for professional conferences or something. So this idea of less really does appeal to them. But again, it's a minoritarian position that only appeals to other sort of middle-class of relatively comfortable professionals. And, it, and again, when you look at the United States, where some stats say like 64% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck, two thirds of Americans struggle to pay for healthcare or worry about healthcare. Um, about a third of Americans even struggle to pay their utility bills. They're, they're deciding between putting food on the table and paying their heat or their utility. So this, this politics of less, this idea that we need to live better with less doesn't really appeal because for working class people, they're already living with less and they're struggling with less. And they, they need, you know, obviously it's just basic uh, sort of working class politics that, that capitalism really exploits the working class. It makes their life worse. It makes their life insecure. And that really we need a politics that offers more to them, that offers them more security and um, uh, more power over the economic systems that control their lives. And this, this politics of less just has no very little capacity to to offer that to the, the the masses of workers in in our society right right yeah i i think so um i, I mean it's 
it's definitely a a big juxtaposition you know seeing people talk about um seeing people talk about how we need to uh <laughs> like we, everybody has to make do with less while like you said those statistics statistics talking about 64% of people living paycheck to paycheck it, it's it's really a what like why do you think that they thought that this would be a, a good like how does it even how does it even come into your head as a potentially good strategy i've been um you know i don't want to go too far with this but we <laughs> we know we know that like in this social media world we live in that increasingly creates these kind of hermetically sealed sort of information bubbles <laughs> where people kind of are all talking to the same types of people who who sort of affirm and congratulate them on their views as being brilliant and correct and 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 so i've i've seen with this kind of these kinds of forms of professional class uh climate politics that you know at least in social media like there's just so much of people just talking to themselves and affirming what they think that there's there becomes this kind of herd mentality of like, yes, this makes a lot of sense to us. So it must be a good idea for all of society. And there's no sort of reflexivity, like no like sort of self-critical <laughs> sort of understanding that, hey, maybe we should be a little um, uh, self-reflexive about that uh, we are sort of, again, like, you know, people with college degrees are a third of society. Maybe we should start to think more about how to, how this kind of crisis could yield a, a broader mass politics, but you just don't see that kind of reflection. You just see a lot of people saying the same stuff. And again, like congratulating themselves about how brilliant they are. And and uh, to go to the the other uh, host's comment, like um, there's, there's very little reflection on that we're not building the power to confront the, the people responsible for climate change and climate change just keeps getting worse. And and you know emissions keep going up and 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 despite the fact that we're not winning the struggle, we're not building the adequate mass movement. There's still this weird sort of uh, sort of self-satisfied uh, uh, a consensus amongst these people that they think they have all the right ideas and all the right um, logical policy proposals. It's just the it's just society that's not coming along, um, and so. You know, unfortunately, I think in a lot of this space, there's ultimately a kind of contempt for the working class masses, this idea that these are just people that live in, you know, live like go to malls and consume hamburgers. And and and, and ultimately, um, if you go back to the original kind of uh, people who coined the idea of the professional managerial class, they're named Barbara and John Ehrenreich, they actually were very concerned about this uh, in the 1960s and 1970s, where the so-called new left was becoming inundated with these highly educated, highly idealistic uh, political new left people who started to really turn their nose up at the masses of working class people and had this kind of an antagonistic contempt for the masses as being dupes, as being, you know, again, like, consumer drones that just sort of go to the mall and don't think about things. So unfortunately, like for decades now, we've kind of had this, this um, somewhat elitist click in the left and in the professional class that really looks, it's, it looks down on the masses. And I think, unfortunately, the climate politics that that sort of feeds into that kind of contemptful politics toward the masses.
Yeah, I don't think that the stereotype of the liberal elite type of person comes from nothing. Uh, what was it that Absolutely. What was it that that made you that that kind of got your gears turning, so to speak? Like, you know, I think I think that I I don't think that it would be uh, you know inappropriate of me to say that like this is a class that that I think that you probably belong to that that I belong yeah. to as a degree haver in a in an office yeah. job a nice union a union job uh working for the federal government uh you know and, and you're working for a university you have a degree you know we're part of this class but we're obviously not you know that's not the uh, what was it that kind of brought you out of that or or that that kept you from getting into that mode of thought <laughs> I think I was in it for many, many years and it took, it's kind of like you dig yourself a hole and you have to dig yourself out. <laughs> um, I mean, this, I, I don't say it in the book, but the book is a kind of somewhat auto critique because I definitely went through all these sort of ideologies myself and I kind of had to shed them bit by bit. And it's really hard because I think this class position really makes these ideologies make a lot of sense. But I would say the turning point for many people on the left um, was really uh, 2015 for me for two reasons. <laughs> the first being I uh, had my first and only child, my daughter, who's now six. And, um, you know, it's 2015 and, I'm, and my daughter's born and I'm looking at climate change getting worse. And I'm starting to think about what kind of world is going to exist for my daughter when she reaches retirement age at, in 2080. <laughs> and and how is how is the planet going to be safe for her and then i started to see that you know we were nearing the end of uh, obama's two terms as president and virtually nothing had been done to address the climate crisis despite all his lofty rhetoric about his belief in the the realness of climate change and that in fact one of the largest fossil fuel booms in u.s history happened during the obama years and, and so that made me pretty angry. And then I started to look more critically around me to see what sort of other professional uh, climate policy wonky people were putting on the table. And it was a lot about, you know, really wonky solutions like carbon taxes or carbon pricing that ultimately would they claim lead to the increase in the price of energy, which again, is not something that a lot of working class people would welcome. And we saw in France, you know, and Macron trying to, you know, there was a big working class revolt. And, and then as I started to look more, I start to see all these like hyper radical uh, climate activists that, that, you know, that sort of want to like dismantle industrial civilization and start like local um, urban gardens as the solution. And, and that didn't seem like something that's gonna be viable or appeal to the masses. So I started bit by bit to really becoming more critical. And in, in talks I've been giving uh, about the book, I say that my method is based on, Karl Marx wrote an essay that, uh, it's actually a letter where he says, we need a ruthless critique of everything existing. <laughs> and and, and this, this sort of ruthless critical outlook that Marx took toward everyone trying to you know, build socialism in his time, he was just, he would eviscerate all his, his, his um, fellow socialists. So that I took inspiration of that I think the climate movement is clearly losing, it's not building the power we need to to win this fight. And so we do need a kind of ruthlessly critical uh, approach towards it. And so I, that's uh, around 2015, I started thinking that way. And then the other thing I should mention is around 2015, we started to finally see 
uh, Bernie Sanders running for president and the revival of a kind of actually somewhat kind of mass socialist politics that was suddenly on the table again. So uh, actually uh, politics was suddenly on the table again. And we were, you know, building movements that that we thought might even be vying for state power and the heart of empire and building these. And so this idea of like, how do we build a mass politics? How do we build a sort of big majoritarian um working class coalition with the burning campaigns was on the table as well. And, it, and then it just reinforced that like clearly this kind of professional class climate politics is not um, that. It's not gonna help build this kind of mass working class movement that, that Bernie and others were trying to build. Right, right. And and somebody mentioned in the chat that I, I'm not sure totally about the history of the, the terminology PMC. Somebody said that it came from James Burnham, an anti-Marxist mm. conservative uh, who sought to divide workers along arbitrarily line, arbitrary lines. Teachers and nurses are certainly working class. And I think that yeah. I don't think that you or I, I certainly wouldn't. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I would not characterize like workers with degrees who have, you know, reasonable salaries as not working class, but, yeah. uh, but I simply noticed that there is a distinction culturally in how they view themselves, uh, people in this profession. It's something that I bump up against in my workplace as I try to, as I talk to people about about the union and things like like they don't even conceptualize conceptualize of themselves as workers, right? And even right. though they are, I think in my view they are right. workers and they do need to organize and they do have far more in common with you know. With a factory worker, or uh, right. you know, uh, or, or other, uh, you know, maybe more stereotypical workers than they do with the boss, and 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 as such, they're part of the working class. And then also, right. there's the 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 trend of the proletarianization of the PMC of the professional managerial Absolutely. class among especially occupations like teaching and nursing but so i i don't i don't want to put words in your mouth but i would certainly not say that people who would be called pmc are not working class it's just it's just a, a flag there that like oh these people kind of these people are like they occupy an interesting space and 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 there needs to be you know understanding about that yeah no it, <laughs> it didn't make for a, a good you know i sort of when i decided to write this book, I wanted to organize it by these three classes, the capitalist class responsible, the professional class who's sort of shaping climate politics and the working class that can build a mass solution. But as I as I dove more deeply into these Marxist debates on class and who's part of the working class, it became clear to me that there, there's really a lot of um, um, very viable uh, uh, perspectives that would locate um, professionals in the broader working class, because essentially, I think the broadest definition you can have is if you if you have to sell your labor power to survive uh, on the market, you're working class. And for a lot of professional people, they are also um, could be living paycheck to paycheck, or at least like if they were fired, they wouldn't be able to survive for much longer than a couple months or something. And so, so there's there's definite. Um, it's probably more accurate to talk about different strata within the working class. And, and I do think it's very clear that um, whether we like it or not, that education has become a, you can call it a cultural cleavage within the broader working class. Um, this is just clear, not just in the United States, across the world, there's been, uh, you know, people like Thomas Piketty and um, David Shore, this political uh, uh, kind of pundit now, have been basically demonstrating empirically that you have 
this process of educational polarization amongst electorates, where you have the drift of sort of old industrial working class and other types of working class people uh, without college educations are shifting to parties of the right and um, uh, educated uh, populations are shifting towards parties that of the center or left that used to be parties of the working class. And so this process of educational polarization is actually real um, politically. You know, you had in 2020, a lot of uh, non-college educated um, black, brown, working class people voting for Trump. Um, and we all know that non-college educated white uh, voters are a big base for him. So, um, and, and I totally agree that we really need to think about uh, different segments of the professional class. Some are quite secure, some are quite doing quite well, but there are these processes, as you said, of proletarianization um, uh, where there's an erosion of autonomy in the workplace for teachers, for nurses. There's an erosion of their security and their even their benefits and their salaries are being attacked from all these different um, uh, bosses in the hospitals or in the uh, uh, college administrations or in uh, school uh, administration. So, yeah, um, and and ultimately, I think one thing I want to make clear um, is that there's really nothing wrong with educated people or professional people doing politics <laughs> or doing left politics or doing environmental politics or working class politics. And in fact, if you look at the history of the working class or socialist movements, I mean, they always have these strata, these intellectuals, these highly educated folks who shape these movements in the parties or in the unions. Uh, but the problem is, is, is if professional people are doing politics in a way that does not appeal to the working class and actually creates this kind of antagonistic outlook towards the working class, that's where you run into problems and that's uh, where we need to be more critical, right? So, um, but but there's definitely a need to kind of create this broader working class coalition that includes these educated folks for sure. Yeah, so the, you know, so we've we've gone through, the, the, there's been a lot of critique here and, and I think, you know, that's, that's pretty, uh, you know, I, I think that that's pretty um, consistent with a Marxist tradition, but, <laughs> but you know, we, and, and, and just to, to lay it out, you know, for folks on the radio, we're talking to uh, Matthew Hubbard, he is a professor of, of uh, uh, geography. Mm -hmm. That's right. Professor of Geography in the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University, talking about his book, Climate Change as Class War. And we've been talking about how, you know, the the environmental movement has basically centered around a politics of less of saying that saying that, you know, uh, the way to fix climate change is you as a working person. All working people, working people across the world, especially in rich countries, quote unquote, uh, we're going to have to consume less. We simply have too much. Um, and 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 your your book says that this isn't this isn't really the way to go. So what is the alternative to that? What is the alternative to that in the policies prescriptions? Like, how do we actually what are the, the things that we can actually do to stop climate change and how do we get there you know as opposed to you you point out that the, the one of the the citizens climate lobby their their goal or their motto is to outsmart climate change you know in, in yeah. a sort of technocratic sense yeah. and that yeah. doesn't seem like a very viable strategy and even some of their prescriptions maybe you know hit or miss what would your strategy and your prescriptions be to fly to fight climate change 
So um, first, I'd say that if you look at like, if anyone's deploying class politics in the climate fight, it's actually the right. And it's like the fossil fuel industry and the Koch brothers, because they will, whenever they talk about climate policy, they say, it's going to cost jobs. It's going to it's going to make your life cost more. It's going to raise your cost of living, and so they really, you know, liberals like to focus on their denial of the science, but their their more consistent message is that climate policy will make your life worse. And when climate liberals do advocate things like carbon taxes and making energy costs more, it's hard to to blame the masses for believing these right-wing people. Yeah. So to, to <laughs> if the counter, right-wing people are just repeating what, <laughs> what the yeah. climate liberals are saying, you know, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's really unbelievable. So, um, so what I say is, and you know, I was lucky to write this book when this kind of big excitement around a green new deal came around, because what I would say is that if you look at working class people's lives and what they are having trouble affording, which are things like, like I said before, like energy and food and housing more than ever these days, all these things are part of the sectors that we actually need to rapidly decarbonize, right? Energy, housing, um, uh, transportation, right? All these things that workers rely on day in, day, day out. So. Our, our politics really uh, should not be about how you need to, uh, you know, consume less of all this stuff, but that could actually be about giving working class people more secure access, you know, green, green public housing or, you know, when they when AOC or uh, released the original Green New Deal document, she talked about a jobs guarantee where everyone had, you know, family sustaining incomes, but also she talked about Medicare for all, you know, it's like, um, people got mad at the Green New Deal for including healthcare, but the Green New Deal was really about saying there are two crises, we're facing inequality and climate change, and we can attack them both by this kind of big public goods oriented uh, project that delivers material gains to the masses of working class people. So that, I think that's one plank of a working class strategy, really just try to uh, build a, um, universal public goods whether it be a job guarantee or in my socialist dream, a, like sort of decommodified electricity as a human right. Um, by the way, you guys are in the Tennessee Valley Authority. The, the original Tennessee Valley Authority had a slogan, electricity for all, which is I think a really um, a slogan we use a lot today for healthcare. And, and, and in fact, the, the Sunrise Movement, when they sat in on uh, Nancy Pelosi's office for a Green New Deal, they had signs that said green jobs for all. So this idea of like delivering material gains for all, I think is a really something we can't lose sight of. You know, we lost the, the Green New Deal presidential battle and Biden won and he is not really subscribed to this kind of public goods approach. So uh, that's kind of off the table for now, but hopefully the political winds will shift where we could build enough power where it could be on the table again. And to build that power, I think we can't uh, just rely on electoral shortcuts, as Jane McAlevey would say, of winning the presidency with Bernie Sanders. We have to go back to basics and build actually working class institutions um, that really are embedded in communities and people's lives. So that's, the as you all know, that's the labor movement, that's the union movement. So it's really exciting to see all this sort of um, uh, I, I loved how you had Jonah Furman's uh, newsletter at the top of the show. You know, the strikes that are happening, but also the, um, the massive increase in union uh, drives and union elections, whether it be Amazon or Starbucks. But what I argue in the book is that we really can't ignore that this climate struggles about energy 
And um, ultimately, climate uh, or sort of energy experts agree that the pathway to decarbonization goes through the electric sector, electricity. We have to clean up electricity uh, so that we're generating all our electricity from clean sources, whether it be solar, wind, hydroelectricity, or nuclear. Um, and then we have to electrify uh, all these things that we don't rely on electricity for, like like our cars and transportation, or like uh, the heat for our buildings. And if we can elect, uh, clean up electricity, electrify everything, that's the path. So um, what I argue in the book is that the electric utility sector is already one of the more unionized sectors in our economy. Um, it's 25% union density. It's represented by unions like the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, the Utility Workers Union of America. And so these unions already have a base of power uh, of organized members. And um, to be fair, they, these unions can be quite conservative. <laughs> they can be quite aligned with the, the, the bosses, if you will, um, in this kind of business unionist tradition. But ultimately, if we're a climate movement, we want to transform electricity, we cannot ignore these unions. We have to put them at not only a seat at the table, but they need to be a driver's seat of sort of shaping our, our policy frameworks, shaping our strategies. But I think the climate movement can also make a case to these unions that if they aren't getting more organized and proactive about putting themselves at the center of a green energy transition, they're actually threatened. Their members are threatened. Their unions are threatened by what I would call a kind of uh, cutthroat green renewable capitalism that uh, right now renewable the renewable energy industry is pretty anti-union. Um, a lot of renewable energy projects are rely on a really insecure transient workforce that and they're hostile towards unions. And also, by the way, a lot of renewable energy projects in the United States are funded by Wall Street, by some of the richest people who take advantage of these um, tax credits that are used to finance renewable projects. So this kind of Wall Street anti-union regime is trying to push through this kind of green capitalism that, that really threatens these unions um, in the electric sector. So uh, we have to kind of organize with these unions um, to, 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 to really, for their own survival. And I think we can make that case to them. Um, but uh, the other thing is, I think we, we just can't ignore these unions. You know, uh, I've worked with a lot of what are called climate justice organizations or people that are trying to build like public power campaigns. And they're, they're always able to get like teachers unions and nurses unions on board, what I would call low carbon unions. And that's great. We need to build solidarity with these kind of low carbon unions, but we're not gonna be able to, to win this uh, struggle unless we can build real uh, coalitions with the unions that are at the heart of the struggle in energy right. and electricity. And uh, I would also just include the building trades more broadly, which are notoriously conservative. But if we're going to solve climate change, it's going to be it's going to mean building a whole lot of stuff, a whole lot of right. new infrastructure. And so we're going to have to figure out how to win over some of these building trade unions at the core of this of this fight. And so uh, and I think given the Green New Deal is kind of off the table, that, that there's really nowhere else to go for for this kind of strategy is to rebuild the labor movement and union movement. And that's where we got to go right now. Yeah, and 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 you know, you mentioned, or, or contrary to that being kind of a utopian vision of social change, I think that you contend that this is actually, um, you know, no shortcuts. But but this is the closest thing to a shortcut is that we've got to, um, we've got to revitalize the labor movement, particularly the labor movement in the electricity sector. And you, you a line that I really liked from your book uh, was something uh, something about 
your students always ask you how they can fight climate change and and most of the common answers are you know reduce your carbon footprint yeah. buy an electric car or something like that and you say join a union uh, and that's cool as hell and yeah. uh, but but i mean it's true right it, uh, you know the yeah. the IBEW has a huge uh yeah and and there we've got two IBEW locals that sponsor the show and and they're yeah. you know leaders in the, in those unions listen to the program. Uh, I don't think amazing. that they're as involved in like uh you know t- the TVA stuff uh, it, it's mostly you know kind of more electricity building stuff but right, but you right, know right. I mean these are the people that are going to be that that are at the center of this kind of stuff and Absolutely. and so these are the these are the folks that that if anybody's going to be able to lead us out of it, it it's going to be them and right. and unions have done stuff like this before you talked in the book about um Mazaki's fight with yes. the oil chemical atomic workers union uh, yes. to pass OSHA and the IBEW's yes. fight against deregulation as sort Absolutely. of case studies of, of unions mm-hmm. leading legislative changes. Can you talk to us about those um, those historical uh, uh, instances? Yeah. yeah, thanks. It's, it's so exciting to talk about this. <laughs> uh, the, the the thing you when you start to learn about this history is that is you just even in the wake of all these attacks on unions, we have to realize unions are still extremely powerful like they still have incredible resources where they can do things like sponsor radio programs and right, and right. what I, what these case studies show me is that when the unions deploy their resources in a in a broad based campaign they can build this mass base for a type of politics they're trying to build so in the case of Tony Mazaki he was working his union members were working in extremely toxic chemical factories you know oil refineries chemical uh, uh, production facilities and he was noticing these workers were getting sick. They were um, getting cancer. They were being exposed to really toxic stuff. And um, what he decided is that the union really needed to, and he clearly understood they're getting sick because the bosses are, are not willing to invest in safety precautions and that we need to fight them. And so what he decided to do is actually bring some scientists, talk about believe science. You know, he brought some scientific experts on toxic, toxic exposure and he brought them on tour. He would go union local to union local all across the country to try to educate the workers about the risks that they were facing in these factories. And, and frankly, to get them kind of fired up and angry about what the bosses are doing to their health. And he succeeded, you know, by building this sort of broad base within each union local. He, you know, got these workers to flood Congress with letters about the need for something like the Occupational Health and Safety Administration, but he also got workers to testify in congressional hearings, but he also got these workers to tell their family members, their community members, and, and, and Tony was clear, like he always would say, we have enough lobbyists in Washington that are trying to pass union friendly legislation what we need is to build a mass base and so what he did is deployed the union's resources to 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 just launch this nationwide campaign that built uh step by step local by local this mass base and you know they got richard nixon to sign off on uh, on osha you know not exactly a, a union friendly left winger so that was incredible and then fast forward into the 90s um, there was this incredible effort to deregulate the electricity sector, um, which there's a lot we could talk about, but unions, uh, particularly the IBEW, saw that as a threat to, to not only their members and their wages, and you know, it might lead to shutdowns of power plants where they have a lot of good union jobs. They also saw it as a threat to 
really the reliability of the grid and the secure and, and and that's another thing these workers take pride in really delivering this vital service to people to hospitals to and so they saw this deregulation as something that's going to make the electric grid more insecure and 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 so they said we got to fight for this to, to to so that we can continue to deliver this service and and little did they know um they they really launched this fight in the 90s, they sent out an organizing binder to every union local and, and sort of gave them strategies. And again, all these resources they can they can deploy. And strategies like you know how to write a letter to the editor about this issue, how to do a press conference about it. And, um, and then they did this organizing in the 1990s. And then famously, you had this wave of blackouts in California, I think it was 2001, which everyone was clear was basically because of regulation in California. And so that kind of, in addition to all this union organizing, really put a lot of cold water on all this deregulation. And so um, again, when unions kind of deploy their resources, their substantial resources to these types of campaigns, they can win because they still have power bases. They still have institutional resources to deploy. And so um, I think, again, if we could imagine the unions doing this in a sort of campaign for a uh, energy, a uh, green energy transition that is not advantage, advantaging the renewable capitalists, but that advantages unions. That could be another example of how to marshal union resources for this kind of nationwide campaign. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. And 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 reading that, I I knew about uh, Mazaki. I think that his his. his he is a case study is a lot more well known among kind of labor left activists, but, but that was really, I, I really enjoyed reading about that IBEW uh, campaign against deregulation. That was, uh, that, that was, I'm, I'm, uh, I've got it on my list to try to find out some more about that and maybe see if we can talk to some people about that. And, and Les Leopold, uh, is the author of the, uh, the biographer for Tony Mazaki. Um, yeah. he, is definitely somebody that I want to get on the program at some point. So I, I think that your book does a really good job of uh, laying out some of the issues with the climate uh, climate movement today and uh, talking about ways forward and, and looking to history for uh, for the way forward. And and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was uh, I thought it was great. I would highly recommend people buy it. Uh, Adam, did you have anything else that you wanted to ask? No, I, I just wanted to see if there's maybe anything that we've left out so far in the conversation that you really wanted to, you know, share with our listeners. Let's see. Um, the, the one thing I was wanting to get in there is that um, the Tennessee Valley Authority, by the way, is uh, we just wrote an, I wrote an article with Fred Stafford and Jacobin we I th we discovered that it's 60 percent unionized right so i mean like that's a level of union density you don't see about anywhere and so um and in our article uh what we point out is that there's a lot of these green ngo types that want to shift all to renewables and want to shift to like community energy they're actually become quite critical of the TVA and, and, and some of them have even advocated breaking it up. In fact, Obama had thrown, thrown the idea around of privatizing the TVA. Um, so that's, that's disastrous. If you want a model of kind of uh, a, a big uh, public power that, that, you know, I think they have something like 14 million customers, 60% union density. Um, and, and actually they just announced a, uh, a research uh, partnership, 
I think with maybe Oak Ridge Laboratory, where they're exploring research into all kind of cutting edge, new um, low carbon technology, uh, uh, some of it in the nuclear realm, but uh, you know, uh, some of it in the kind of green hydrogen realm. And so they're exploring like cutting edge technologies. And, and, and so, whereas a lot of the green left kind of thinks we're gonna have just like small scale renewables and localities spread across the, the landscape, I think TVA represents this kind of, it represents something at the scale of the crisis we face, a massive uh, federally owned public power uh, 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 utility that could expand. And in fact, Bernie Sanders and, he took this from the People's Policy Project, like this idea that if we want to solve climate change, we need we need something like a green TVA that could massively expand clean energy production all across the country. And um, so I think uh, that kind and of that model, provides a, a really good a, a good product, a cheap product, yeah. uh, uh, reliable and and is already much more clean energy than than others you know the the percentage of of hydro and nuclear energy that the tva uses is is when you combine both of those um it's something like 60 percent and only yep. like 39 yeah. percent of it is is fossil yep. fuels um yep. so it's a real and and the price is much cheaper like if you move south uh into you know the more southern parts of Alabama, their utility yep. bills are much yep. higher. They have to deal with Alabama Power and another right. sponsor of the program, Energy Alabama. They're constantly having fights with Energy uh, with Alabama Power, um, and and they're insanely high rates on mm-hmm. customers. Uh, it's you know uh, the the difference is market, I think, and and you know you get people. Uh, yeah, I think that people are very satisfied with with the service that they get from the TVA and, and it's a, it's a product that, that I think that, you know, more than some would be easy to expand. Yeah. And, and I mean, in its origins in the thirties, that was their, maybe their number one goal was not only delivering power to rural areas that didn't have it, but also delivering cheaper power. They really wanted to deliver the cheapest power possible. And, and that vision again is completely lost. Like most climate advocates, again, think we should be paying more for, for energy to kind of internalize the emissions. But this vision of, of, of more and cheaper clean power, right? If it's clean, I don't think, you know, for cli- at least from the climate perspective, we don't need to worry about uh, uh, more consumption of it, right? So, you know, this vision of, of giving cheaper power is something the climate movement could learn tons from. And that's why people love uh, the TVA in that region, so. Yeah. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for your time. We went a little long, but I think it was uh, I think it was good. I enjoyed it just as I enjoyed the book, which is Climate Change as Class War. Uh, Matthew Huber is the author. You can buy it on Powell's if you use the union's link. Seven point five percent of your purchase will go to the ILWU Local Fives Strike Fund, which is the union that represents workers at Powell's Books. Matthew, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun. You just saw a clip from the Valley Labor Report. We are live every Saturday morning. All right, y'all. Thanks for joining. Appreciate your time this morning. We're going to wrap things up. Uh, I did forget a PSA from earlier in the show. I meant to read this earlier. Uh, I forgot it, and I wanted to make sure we got it recorded this week. And that is from the League of Women Voters of Alabama. 
I saw this message come across uh, my inbox this week and wanted to amplify this message. League of Women Voters of Alabama is urging you to contact your state representative now to urge opposition to House Bill 209. The bill was presented to the Alabama House Constitution Campaign and Elections Committee on Wednesday, April 19th. This bill would criminalize providing absentee voting assistance. You can use the League's uh, HB 209 talking points as input for your own powerful message to your state representative. So if you find the League of Women Voters of Alabama online, on their website or online on social media, uh, I know they have a Facebook page, you can find this information. They share the links to easily find your Alabama legislators. Um, so the hearing was this past week. Um, there are 42 Alabama House representatives who have come together to sponsor, co-sponsor this anti-democratic legislation, which, quote, would prohibit any person from distributing, ordering, requesting, collecting, completing, obtaining, or delivering an absentee ballot application or absentee ballot of another person in certain circumstances. It would provide for exceptions. The, this bill would prohibit any person from receiving a payment or providing a payment to another person for distributing, ordering, requesting, collecting, completing, obtaining, or delivering an absentee ballot application or absentee ballot of another person in certain circumstances. This bill would also establish criminal penalties for violations. If HB 209 passes, Individuals who help a voter participate in the absentee voting process would be prosecuted and convicted of a Class D felony. According to the League, HB 209 will incite fear and confusion for vulnerable and underserved voters who have in the past obtained information and assistance from trusted, nonprofit, nonpartisan organizations such as the League of Women Voters. If HB 209 passes, voting rights groups, Churches and other nonprofit volunteer organizations would be prohibited from providing nonpartisan free assistance to voters with the absentee ballot request process. It would also criminalize individuals who are working to increase voter participation. The League of Women Voters of Alabama strongly opposes HB 209 and asks your assistance in defeating it. You can read more about this bill and how to get involved at L. WVAL.org. And I also want to point you to a recent article by Patrick Darrington called Voting Rights Advocates Are Organizing Against New Voter Suppression Bill. Advocates also say the bill likely violates the Americans with Disabilities Act and Section 208 of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, and that is published by the Alabama Political Reporter. So that's all I have for you, folks. Really appreciate your time today. Hope you enjoyed today's main show where we hosted the conversation uh, between Rutgers and the University of Alabama campus workers. And I hope you enjoyed uh, hearing from Warren Tidwell about disaster relief in Camp Hill, Alabama. Uh, overtime was Earth Day themed and uh, really enjoyed that. So uh, without further ado, hope to see y'all at the Labor Council Barbecue this weekend today until 4 o'clock p.m. All power to the workers. Have a good weekend, y'all.